Welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. My name is Charlie Andrews. I'm a GP and I work with an extended role in gastroenterology in Bath in the UK. In this series, I aim to bring you up to date, useful advice about how to manage common gastroenterology conditions. As usual, the views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and the host, and they shouldn't replace clinical guidelines or your own clinical assessment of the patient. It's also really helpful if you provide feedback to us. So please provide feedback by clicking on the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology website and just following the link under the podcasts. It's always really useful to know what you find helpful, what you don't find useful, and how I can make this more beneficial to your learning. Today, we are talking about inflammatory bowel disease, and in particular, the link between primary and secondary care. And I'm very pleased to be joined by Pearl Avery, who is an IBD nurse specialist. I'm going to ask Pearl just to introduce herself now. I'm Pearl. I'm uh inflammatory bowel disease nurse specialist by background. Um, I completed my uh, advanced nurse practitioner master's um, about four years ago now and um, fast learnt the value of those sort of advanced skills in caring for patients in secondary care. Um, I currently work at St Mark's Hospital as a AMP in inflammatory bowel disease but also I do um, two sessions a week at a local uh, medical centre, local primary care medical centre where um, I'm using that specialist knowledge um, at the real front door. Let's, you know, lots of people call ED the front door, but actually let's face it, you know, the GP practice is really the, the, the place we should be helping patients to access care. That's amazing. You you seem to have a really interesting role. So you've really, you know, it's hard to say that anyone would have a better foot in both camps than you, really. When it comes to inflammatory bowel disease, you know, there's there would be no one better. So I'm really excited to talk to you a bit about that role. Um, I wonder if you could start by telling us a bit about what your day-to-day job looks like, perhaps when you're in the hospital, um, working in, in, in the IBD sort of sphere, and then a little bit about when you're out in the community actually I'd love to hear more about that yeah okay so so um with St Mark's I'm actually working um three weeks um out of four I work from home so I'm running telephone clinics um answering advice line calls and um dealing with prescriptions and various other things um like that from home um using those sort of advanced skills to um, assess patients over the phone effectively I feel so um, you know I'm still able to initiate treatment if I need to and um, and you know progress care if, if that's necessary so it's amazing what technology has allowed us to do and in some ways it's one positive that has come out of Covid has been the leap forward in technology um, The other week I go up in person and um, it becomes quite a long week. Um, I do lots of staff support um, and development in in that week, as well as um, a little more in-person work. Um, I'll see patients on the IBD infusion unit um, and down in outpatients as well. And that role's hopefully morphing into um, a role that will have a 
a designated sort of research aspect to it. So nurse led research rather than just being a you know research nurse, which is there's nothing wrong with being a research nurse, but I'm really keen to um, advance the nurse research agenda within inflammatory bowel disease. And then um, when I'm in primary care, um, my my full day when I'm there is um, is very much face to face. Um, there's a few telephone follow up slots. I do. Um, I have gen generally through the day a 15 minute slots, but I've got three IBD slots um, in the morning, which are dedicated to more complex patients. And although they're currently called IBD slots, they are covering inflammatory bowel disease microscopic colitis um i'm getting quite a lot of diverticular patients as well um and, and probably you know throughout the day in the 15 minute slots there's very many patients with um a myriad of gi complaints um from from some sexually transmitted um anal warts to um to what did what what did I have last week? I think uh, oh some threadworms. So you know everything, any gut complaint seems to come through my through my clinic room at the moment, which is really interesting. And it's great to be able to share the experience when you look after an IBD patient. You don't just look after their IBD. I think as a specialist nurse, you get to know the patient. They come to you with many. Um, many concerns, not just about their inflammatory bowel disease. And it started to emerge in my practice when I was working in Dorset that actually, you know, I was gradually becoming quite a, a, a generalist inside my specialty in a way, um, because patients, if they had a problem with their guts, would wait to come and see me to discuss it. And it wasn't always inflammatory bowel disease. Sometimes it was something else. So, which is probably why I've ended up doing this really. What an what an amazing role! You must be such a sought after sort of person within your practice. I'm sure that people are coming to you and asking all sorts of questions about IBD, but also yeah. all sorts of areas of gastrointestinal medicine. Yeah, it's been really interesting being able to share the ex experience, but also it's you know some of those concerns that that you have within primary care about blood monitoring and things like that that actually you know I've probably become a little bit hardened to over the years of monitoring azathioprine and mercaptopurin patients um you know and, and the differences in the worries about liver function tests and when to worry when to not worry you know having that conversation about an a ALP not necessarily being anything of concern in in relation to their azathioprine but it might be of concern they might have a problem with their their bones they might have a bone cancer you know there's lots of other different things to be thinking about we think about the liver damage but we're not necessarily thinking about the other causes mm. of why the liver enzymes might be elevated mm. um fecal calprotectin is a classic one isn't there i mean we know there's um some data um from crohn's and colitis uk and a rapid evidence um, summary that they'd they'd asked for recently, where in 2019, patients who were surveyed um, with newly diagnosed diagnosed IBD, only four percent of them had actually had a calprotectin before um, before diagnosis. And interestingly, I've just had an email today from a GP where I'd asked um, for a calprotectin to be done. This was in my secondary care job. I'd asked for calprotectin to be done locally for them. 
and they can't do it because their lab won't do it, do a calprotectin for an over 40 patient, which is mm. just so frustrating. This is a patient with a, with a diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease and they still won't do the calprotectin because the pathway won't allow them to. So, mm. you know, I think it's that kind of thing. We've got to try and we've got to try and demyth that and make sure the pathways aren't being abused because I think they often are, aren't they? You know, we, we have a pathway. It says X, Y, Z, and no one will deviate from that pathway, but it doesn't help the patient necessarily. No. Yeah, I know we have to think around those, don't we? Yeah. I'm going to pick up on a few things that you've talked about. That mm. Your role sounds absolutely fascinating, and it must be really interesting to sort of have a look at what's going on in primary care with your secondary care hat on. But I wanted yeah. to pick up on a couple of things that you talked about. So, so the first one was around technology and how that might be used to support people with IBD. Do you think that there are things on the horizon or are there things that we're using already that, that you're finding really helpful to help people with IBD? So, I mean, again, I think the, the, the things that are coming our way um, are um, more apps, <laughs> um, but, but better apps, more integrated apps. And um, I know that um, at St. Mark's we're working on an app that will work with PKB as well. So they'll be able to get um, results through the PKB system, the patient knows best system, but also have more disease specific um, scoring and um, advice, guidance, contact, messaging to clinical teams, whether that be secondary or primary care. I think, you know, those are the sorts of things that can start to to develop. And I think things like the e-consults have been absolutely um, invaluable in primary care. They've been really helpful. Um, managing learning I think we're all learning how to better manage patients in a, in a more remote way and um and I think it's possible I mean I really do I, I find the days I do the odd extra day for the GP practice we're actually doing telephone calls from home because it's just more convenient fits around other things and um I found that I'm just as effective on those days and I probably out of those phone calls only send one person a week to a face-to-face -face consult because I think there's so much that you can manage over the phone um, and in my experience I know there are a few patients that are resistant but in my experience most patients really like it especially when they know they're still getting the care at the end of the call um, mm. there are of course those patients you need to put your hands on and there always will be those patients but um, I think technology is allowing us to do things in a, in a much more different way and I think we it's funny how some places have really embraced video conferencing um, for patient consultations and other places not so much. Um, and I know in inflammatory bowel disease, um, we haven't really embraced that, whereas I think we could because there's, there's things we could do perhaps more in depth. Some of the consultants are using it um, mm. a little bit more, especially for those patients where perhaps they're shared care with local consultants as well so they're dialing into the patient's consultation the patient will go in person to the local hospital and then um professor hart will dial, dial into that consultation which mm. is brilliant you mm. know and they can view all the all the scans and everything else on on the, on the screen so yeah. it just means the patient's still there and very much involved in that multidisciplinary conversation and are we at the point where patients are doing sort of near near patient calprotectin testing 
So yeah, near, near patient care protecting is happening, um, has been happening for many years. We were doing that in um, Dorset County um, from 2016 onwards. And um, that was great because it meant that, you know, we could um, get those quick results. What I think there's a way to go with the kits at the moment. I, I mean, I think they'd be an amazing resource to have in primary care because, you know, if, if somebody presents at the point they present with their active symptoms, to be able to do a care protection at that point would be really helpful because often they go away um things settle down sometimes they don't do the test um and that's that's one of the biggest problems although you know that four percent of patients that reported they hadn't had a calprotectin what we don't know is how many were requested and how many didn't do them because mm -hmm. they didn't think it was important and that happens a lot it's about 50 percent of patients don't return a stool sample when mm -hmm. when we've requested it so okay. that's quite quite yeah so we are there yeah. and mm -hmm. i think there's there's more to come um, in many respects. I think there's more to come. We've got, um, you know, there's those you, you blood kits that you're sent now um, taking part on, in the ONS um, mm. COVID survey. So every month they send me a kit and I send them a bit of blood mm. um, and they check my antibodies. And, you know, it's just a little finger prick and, it's quite amazing, isn't it? Again, the technology is not just the digital technology um, that we're using today, but it's 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 all the other tech, isn't it? The, the med tech, the, the advances that they're making in testing and moving yeah. the lab into the field, really. And can you give us a flavour of some of the questions that you get from patients um, and also GPs? Because obviously a lot of what you're doing is 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 supporting people very directly. We know that IBD can change very quickly. Uh, and it's actually, you know, for me as a GP, it's invaluable being able to know that I can make contact with someone at the hospital if I have a question or I can direct a patient to the hospital to speak to the IBD nurse specialist. Could mm. you give us a bit of a flavour of what sort of questions you're supporting during the time? I mean, anything, anything from... Um, can I increase my mesalazine to um, to do, do I need a rectal treatment? Um, how do I manage this diarrhea? There's no bleeding. There's no so it, you know it can be about functional issues. It it can be about medication. It can be about blood monitoring. I alluded to that earlier on. I think that's mm. often a common question is oh I've stopped this patient's azathioprine because their lymphocyte count was low, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, and interestingly, we would not worry about lymphocyte count really um, at all. Probably if it was non-existent, we might worry about it. But I don't want to be flippant, but, you know, we really don't worry about the lymphocyte count at all. And as long as um, they're fine and there's, there's no opportunistic infections, we'd we'd encourage to continue the treatment. The um, So lots and lots of conversations about medication. Mm myth busting a little bit about dosing for mesalazines for instance i think that's one of one of the the most common things that i do um you know trying to point people to the cochrane reviews where it was very clear that higher dosage uh, for maintenance was really important um as well as higher dosage in flare so you 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 definitely want over a 2 gram dose um unless it's one of the really new new mesalazines um mm. 
like the Octasia 1600 milligram tablet, but it tends to be tends to be medication yeah. testing. Do I need to do a calprotectin? I mean, that's interesting because you know increasingly that's probably a primary care thing now. Um, what I've what I've I've taken from primary care probably into secondary care is just a reminder again to rule out infection um, because so often patients with inflammatory bowel disease will have um, an active infection that hasn't been treated um, because we haven't looked for it because we've assumed it's IBD um, and actually you know that's that can be dangerous in itself we start giving steroids mm. to a patient who's got C. diff or yeah. um, another infection we're just encouraging that infection in many respects so remembering to do that that mcns as a as a really you know fundamental need for a flaring mm. ibd patient that's a really good good tip there um in terms of the blood monitoring and the uh, and monitoring of the immunosuppressants and the biologics obviously mm. that you you get quite involved in that um and you were talking about the uh, infusion clinic that you support um yeah do you, do you have some top tips that you could give to our GPs about blood monitoring and and the and, and monitoring of these drugs. So it's not always about the numbers, it's checking in with the patient. Um, often these patients know what, what's good for them. When you first start monitoring a patient um, newly, it's checking what their levels have been for sure, looking for trends. Um, don't jump a, 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 an ALT rise if it's not terrible because the next lot of bloods may well be completely normal. And, and this is the thing, we're often measuring the, 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 these bloods so frequently, more frequently than we would in the general population. And, and there is that element of, you know, the variation, the normal variations within a person's life. You know, what did they have to drink um, the, the week before mm -hmm. they had that test done? You know, all that kind of stuff. So it's trying to think about outside of the numbers and think about the patient and that's sometimes difficult and we've got such workloads to try and you know to not just think about the numbers and i think increasingly we need to um use technology there to you know file the normal normal results results as quickly as possible so that we're only looking at those with concern but also then change those parameters so that if there is you know, normal abnormal, which we do see in some patients um, on immune suppression um, and immunomodulation. Um, there's those patients that run with a slightly high ALT and that's their normal. We don't want to flag that every time. Um, we want to flag it if it rises above their normal. Uh, so that would be my, the key thing. So top tip is don't look at the numbers, look at the patient um, and ask the patient how they are. And if their if their white cell count is low, check it in a month. Don't stop the drug. You don't you don't all. I, I think it's having the confidence to do that. And so, like you said, knowing that you've got secondary care there is great. But I'm not so sure we'll always have secondary care there. Um, and I and you know, my my fear is that we'll end up with a lot of patients needing a lot of support especially with the initiation of things like patient-initiated follow-up and various other things, we need to kind of get this out into, into um, primary care. We need to get the knowledge out there so that we can support patients better at home, really. Mm. That brings me nicely on to the, the topic of how we can work better together 
Mm. between primary and secondary care for our patients with IBD. What are your thoughts? So I think, you know, bringing um, bringing some advanced IBD skills from nursing, medicine, out into primary care networks is probably going to be the most beneficial thing that can happen because you're bringing the knowledge with it, with, with us. So, you know, within my practice, they've had some updates from me, um, which is great. You know, it means that they, like, as you alluded to, they, you know, they, they have a gastro concern, they'll, they'll ask me first. And, and if I don't know, we refer them. <laughs> That's, um, mm. So it just gives that extra level of, I mean, much like we've been doing for years with diabetes, respiratory, um, dermatology, it's not like it's a new concept. I think it's just we need to be brave within some of the the um, the newer, I suppose, chronic conditions. And I think um, if we look at IBD as a fairly new chronic condition in terms of it's a growing caseload of patients, because up until 1965, people died with IBD. So until steroids came along, people were dying with ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, far often than they were, far more often than they were surviving. And we didn't have treatments like mesalazines that work in something like eighty percent of people if they're used properly. So you know, especially if you're using both oral and rectal treatments, and I think that would be another top tip: is encourage mm. the use of rectal treatments. So if you've mm. got a patient taking oral mesalazine and they've clearly got distal symptoms then add in erectile mesalazine. You can't overdose mm. them. And I think that's really, really a key thing. Or add in a erectile steroid if necessary. Mm. Um, so lots of different approaches to sort of maximising and optimising patients um, so that they don't need to come to, to secondary care. And then when we need patients to be really seen in secondary care in, mm -hmm. in, in an acute state, then they will be seen. At the moment, we're still seeing patients we don't that, that we don't need to see. And we, we, we have to find a better way of working together to mm -hmm. make sure these patients are supported. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers that question. Yeah, no, it's good. I'm, I guess that technology may have a role in some of that with the remote yes, monitoring. Yeah, yeah we may see some of that coming in yeah and having an impact i i love your what you do i think it's great i, I think that your concept of bringing the expertise out of the hospital is fantastic and i th i think it's great for the patients and i think it's really beneficial for the primary care landscape to have that and certainly at the moment i feel that the direction of travel is as you're describing, really. So I wonder if we might see more of this, because I think I hope so. it's brilliant. I hope so. And I, I'm talking about it everywhere I go, because it's mm. really good for us as well, as clinicians, to feel like, you know, there's a different route to go. And I think, especially for, for nurses, we, I mean, I don't, again, it's every profession has its challenges, but I think within nursing, we have um, kind of a, a right. So you're a nurse now. Um, now what so what you know what's what's the pathway now are you're going to mm. go into ward management or you're going to be a management nurse or or you might work in primary care or you might you might be a community nurse um, but it feels like you have to be in a particular box you know or you're a specialist nurse now so you can't possibly be a generalist as well 
well, I can actually, mm. <laughs> you know, and mm. it's um, yeah, with the right training, you can be anything you want to be within your professional role. And and our roles are um, are now rubbing along so seamlessly. And I think primary care, you know, in a way, it's funny, isn't it? Because you, in some ways, it might have been a little bit behind on embracing some of the advancing nursing and, and allied health professional roles, but with all the the works, you know, workforce crisis everywhere, those roles have had to be. Um, embraced and it's created this opportunity for this knowledge to start coming out and um and for us to be working in a different way i mean i work with such a diverse group of 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 professional people now in in primary care probably more diverse than i do in the hospital in many respects i mean of course we have mdts and we have dietitians and we have all of that but within the practice just on a daily basis you've got paramedics you've got a mental health amp a physio you know, and and nurses as well, but all from different backgrounds. So it, it it's just a great melting pot of experience. Mm. And we just have to utilise that, I think. I think we do. And I imagine just sort of with an IBD based sort of hat on thinking about kind of social prescribing to help with the because yeah. you alluded to that kind of the long term support of these people, yeah. you know, you, you you develop IBD in your teens, potentially, and it, it continues yeah. your whole life. But actually, you know, thinking about the whole holistic care you know we've got it in the community and there are yeah, you know, an opportunity yeah, to access that support, which is really mm. hard to access in secondary care is you know I know it's still hard to access mm. but it's easier in terms of you know accessing things like steps to well-being and those kind of you know talking therapies can be really beneficial to patients but also a fairly new and novel approach to managing depression and anxiety in IBD is actually to start treating the psychiatric problem mm. and you know we, we do a lot of talking therapy we, we're always sending folk for counseling in IBD but mm. actually are we really dealing with the root cause of their um, of their depression and sometimes medication is the right thing to do because then we can get them we can get them well in both re- respects so I think it needs to be managed carefully but yeah I think there's mm. going to there's going to be some interesting insights coming from that avenue mm. as well and, and you're right you know the expertise is already in primary care we just need to tap into that and build mm. the confidence about how we support patients because it's you know that it's there yeah and I, you know, i'd like to take it's another opportunity for me to say I, I again keep saying one of the biggest and most important things we've got to do as we move into integrated care systems is change the rhetoric we've got to stop talking about them and us and we've got to stop talking about secondary care primary care and we, and we must just start talking about care and we must um where the care is personal care it's the patient care it's it, it mm. doesn't matter where it takes place it, yeah. it's whether it's appropriate at the time that that patient presents and that's the important yeah. thing so um yeah and and i and and for me stepping out of secondary care into primary care in the new integrated services that are emerging has shown me just how um how much there there is to offer from that from that knowledge that that knowledge of Mm. patients you know your patients better than the the gp practices know patients better than anywhere usually especially Mm -hmm. those patients that are presenting with chronic disease so and we don't utilize that really Pearl, I think I could talk to you for hours about this. I, my, the listeners will know that I'm pretty passionate about bringing things out of the hospital, community-based care, 
Um, you, you know, your your role is innovative and you are inspirational to listen to and you clearly love everything that you're doing. And it's so it's so nice to hear. It really is. Um, Thank you. Just it's to nice finish. to talk to somebody with a, with a like mind as well, because, you know, I've, I've found most people I've spoken to, again, especially within within the um, within the, within the work I'm doing in the community is just a willingness to do things differently. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's not so present in the hospital. And that's I think there's always those elements of concern about, you know, <laughs> my job you know Mm. hang on why do you want to be a doctor I don't want to be a doctor I'm Mm. a nurse with advanced skills and that makes I'm different you know there's things I can do that are similar to a doctor's but there's other things I wouldn't want to do you know there are other things that I it's nice having having those levels of care and that that you know that network of people Mm. to support patients and knowing that you're not the only person that has to make that decision you know you're, mm. you you can go to someone else to have a conversation about it you can have a multidisciplinary team and why why aren't we necessarily thinking about the really complex patients bringing gps into mdt meetings why are we not saying you know mm. much like we do with case conferences for, for kids and stuff you know you want to get the care right for people we perhaps do need to be thinking about what can be offered elsewhere as well I think we're gonna to have to watch this space, Pearl, because I I feel like everything you're talking about just sounds really good. And um By the time really we retire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um so to finish off, Pearl, um, I always ask this question: do you have any top tips that you want our primary care audience to go away with from this episode? So from a from a diagnosis point of view, um, a little bit of a um a pet project of mine or not pet project but a, a bugbear is if you do have a patient with IBS um, that has a diagnosis look at where that diagnosis was given just double check that that is what their diagnosis is consider things like microscopic colitis if you've got somebody with watery diarrhea and that um, and that came on in a sudden way um, consider things like bile salt malabsorption in your IBS patients if they've got rectal bleeding, always bring them in and check for piles because nearly all of them will will be piles. Um, and and that's before you send them down the two-week wait pathway. It's really important. Bring them in and check for piles. That's somebody you do need to see. It won't take long to do a digital rectal examination and it rules out anything nasty. And sometimes you don't even need to do the digital rectal examination if piles are very clearly present. So I think that's it diagnosis mm-hmm. of IBS it's not always IBS and that's the most important top tip for me and for the patients that you're looking right. after thank you so much Pearl and thank you very much to our audience for for listening today I hope you've got a lot from this discussion I certainly have yeah. really enjoyed it I feel really I feel really enthused and I want to I want to I want to get an IBD advanced nurse practitioner in my practice I don't live very great. far from you I'm sure I could you know in the future let's <laughs> I'll hold you to that up. I'll hold you to that that sounds great um but thank you so much for joining me Pearl no it's really thanks for asking asking me to take part it's really good to sort of spread the word and like I say hopefully the more like-minded folk there are the more we'll get the specialist knowledge out there exactly thank Perfect. you thank you very much <laughs>